0: This is a crowd podcast. The biggest fear for me, actually, a lot of the time was being tortured. You know, the images which I'd had before was people like Terry Waite of being held hostage, you know, which I'd heard in the news before. And I this feeling started sinking in me during my captivity where I thought... This could be years, this this could really take years, and I, I might really be here a really, really long time. This is The Secret History of
1: Flight 149, with me, Stephen Davis. It's my investigation into why a British Airways passenger plane landed in Kuwait in the midst of the 1990 Iraq invasion, and what became of the hostages. After holding his hostages in hotels for several weeks, Saddam Hussein, ever the strategist, had now carefully placed them at key locations – electricity stations, dams, chemical weapons plants. He'd turned them into human shields against potential Western military action. In this episode, you'll hear tales of starvation, fear, desperate escape plans, and the psychological demons that gnawed away at the human shields the longer they were held in captivity. And just a warning, if you're an animal lover, it might make for some difficult listening. Things were starting to get ugly. Clive the flight's cabin services director, was kept prisoner in a rundown bungalow near the Kuwaiti docks with seven other hostages. We were absolutely terrified actually. The Iraqi uh, military would
2: barge in. They used to come in at least three times a day and night, just kick the door in and uh, we all had great trouble trying to stop the soldiers from barging in and disturbing the girls who were all in one little room sharing one little single bed in turns and laying on the floor. Us fellows were all in another little room laying on the floor. At that time, we didn't have any mattresses or anything, but just a feeling of helplessness. They were feeding us rubbishy type food, mostly boiled rice and uh, thick brown gravy. You can't do anything, you could not go outside. We had to negotiate with a soldier out there to allow us to walk around the bungalow. Um, we were told
1: you would be shot if you move over that fence. Young Gregor Schatz was with another group of hostages, hundreds of miles from Clive. He had no idea where he was. All he knew was that he'd been taken somewhere by train from Baghdad with barbed wire wrapped around the train door handles to stop anyone from escaping.
0: I didn't notice at the time, but afterwards discussing with one of my former fellow hostages, I believe that we were held somewhere near Fallujah at a hydroelectric power dam or some sort of water installation. So we were there in some sort of bungalows, which were filthy when we arrived as well. So we had to clean up our quarters first. There was a big wire fence around the whole compound. You could look out into just pretty much deserts. There was nothing much that you could see on the horizon. And on the top of the wire fencing around the compound, there was barbed wire. And after a few days, they brought extra barbed wire, huge rolls outside of the wire fence. It felt to me again like, uh, oh my God, why do I have to put that there? There's already a fence. Where are we going to run to? I mean, it's almost impossible to get out of here. And even if we jump that fence, where are you going to run in the desert, right? And there was really not much food. I mean, there there was really poultry what we would get. It was a bit of, you know, sort of watery soup with a bit of cucumber and tomato in it. And that was pretty much it.
1: So, the Flight 149 hostages are now scattered all over Iraq and Kuwait. They have no idea where they're being held. They're surrounded by armed guards and barbed wire. Their loved ones back home are left to fear the worst and supplies are running short. The food was a problem
2: for quite a long time. We did have water, thank goodness, but uh, food became a problem, a big problem. We were absolutely uh, starving at one stage, however, I managed to negotiate one day with a a rather young Iraqi soldier with his uh, flip-flop sandals on and he'd been ordered to guard us and just sitting outside on our little patio one day he was out there with his big gun and I started to talk to him and he spoke English. He was a student studying English up in Baghdad and he had been ordered down south chatting to him I, I had a saint christopher necklace on and uh, he came up to me and he said mr clive he said uh, are you a christian and i said yes i am a christian i said this is a, a saint christopher patron saint of travellers with a little smile on my face because i thought where's it got me and uh he said oh mr clive i am also a christian but you must not tell any of my colleagues because if they knew I was a Christian, they would slit my throat. And I said, oh my God, no. I said, no. I said, I won't uh, do anything like that. Of course I won't tell them. But could you get us a little bit more food? And he said, well, I don't know if I can do that, Mr. Clive. And I said, well, you've bloody well try. It'd be unfortunate if I had to tell your colleagues out the back of the bungalow that you're a Christian. To which, would you believe this, two nights later at two o'clock in the morning, the front door was opened, a little van had arrived, and in the dark, a leg of giraffe was dragged through the front door, and into our backyard, into our kitchen area. So we had a leg of giraffe, which lasted nearly uh, two weeks, I think, if I remember rightly. And our difficulty was keeping the big bone, the length of the bloody thing, hidden from uh, the occasional soldiers that came in to search our place. So we found all sorts of funny places to hide this bloody great big bone of this leg of this giraffe. (laughs) Eventually, we managed to go out at night and we dug a bloody great
1: big hole and buried the damn thing um, before dawn. A giraffe leg from the local zoo in 50-degree heat. Desperation. But what became of the escape party? In the last episode, we heard how the flight's captain, Richard Brunyat, had escaped before Iraqi soldiers started rounding everyone up. He and five others had ended up in a Kuwaiti safe house, which on the face of it looked like a lucky break. But privately, Richard agonised over his actions, as you can hear from his diary, read for us by an actor. The good news is that the apartment we're hiding in has air conditioning, running water and plenty of food. We seem to have fallen on our feet. However, I am very nervous and constantly worried about the decision I have made. Sleep is difficult. There is a lot of shooting in the area, with trace of fire lighting up the sky. The crew were being extremely careful, hiding the uniforms, stashing their food rations in the rafters in case the house got looted, and only going out at night. Not only did they have to worry about Iraqi patrols, but also gun battles between the Iraqis and the Kuwaiti resistance. They taped the windows in case of bomb blasts and had to climb onto the roof when they needed fresh air. Richard and his group were helped by a resistance leader named Fahid. He believed that as the British had sent soldiers to defend Kuwait, he had a duty to help British hostages. Here's some more from Richard's diary. I am plagued by nightmares, and all of us, though we don't say it, wait for the knock on the door which would end our freedom. I worry for Fahad, our Kuwaiti benefactor, who is extraordinarily brave. He risks his life daily to bring us supplies.
2: Each night he takes out Iraqi soldiers by the most awful methods.
1: By this point the resistance had stepped up their actions with more violent attacks, They were engaged in shootouts and sieges across the city, bombing Iraqi targets and taking out soldiers with sniper fire. The Kuwaiti resistance is an epic story, virtually unknown in the West. But in Kuwait there's a national landmark dedicated to them, the Al-Quran Martyrs Museum. The location is a semi-destroyed house, the site of a fierce battle where many Kuwaitis and Iraqis died bullet holes marked the walls, and just outside of the remains of one of the Iraqi tanks used in the conflict. Richard was right to fear for Fahad's life. Although they weren't being held as human shields, the escape group were having to endure a terrifying time in a war-torn city. There was no good option. Let's return to the human shields and check in on Barry Manners. To recap, His partner, Anthony managed to escape after getting hold of some fake Indian paperwork. But at this point, Barry has no idea if he made it out alive. Barry is now a human shield, held at a dam in northern Iraq. Barry's experience of being a human shield is slightly different from the other hostages, thanks to his particular captor. But it was only later that this became clear. I'll let Barry pick up from here.
3: There were 12 of us as I recall, or 11 or 12 of us, we had two sleeping rooms. We were six to a room, there was a shared bathroom but it was clean and the food was not great but it was more than adequate and um, the chap who was in charge of our arrangements there, a civilian, who was the resident engineer of the dam, was very keen to try and make us as comfortable as possible with, within the remit that he had and the resource that he had.
1: When you met him the first time, did you, did you think this is going to be, of all the captors I could end up with, this was going to be one of the better ones?
3: Not at all, not at all. I, I'm locked up at night with a bunch of strangers. It's very, very hot. You know, you've got six people farting and Sweating and all the rest of it in a in a very warm room, and my partner I don't know if he's dead or alive, and it's all uh, and I'm all of a sudden I'm a I'm a passenger in this whole experience. You know, my life is no longer my own, and and lots of people with guns, and very often who making it very clear that, that that they'd be used against me if I tried to do anything about the, the situation.
1: Nevertheless, at some stage you developed uh, a friendship with this man, you felt that he was treating you as a human being?
3: Um, I wasn't sure of his motivations. We were taken to his, uh, his house, for example, a sort of guest lodge villa overlooking the lake, and given a cup of tea, and his daughter came round with sweets. And I didn't really know his motivation for doing that, whether was he instructed by Baghdad to do that, operating under instructions were we going to be photographed sitting on a lawn drinking tea because i'd been photographed at the mansor hotel in baghdad by cnn to show that we were in some kind of holiday camp we were marched downstairs told to put on swimming costumes photographed next to a swimming pool cnn took the press release from the bath party took some photos then we were marched again and taken upstairs and locked up again And so you just sit there, you take the tea, and when they come round with a box of sweets, you don't just take one, you take as many as you can get away with because you don't know if they're going to give you sweets the next day. You don't know if they're going to feed you the next day. None of it's in your control. But in hindsight, knowing what I know now, obviously I recognise that as him reaching out to us and saying, I'm not like these other fuckers because that's exactly how he felt. And it's only now having sat down and demolished a, at least a bottle of scotch with the man after this had happened, after years and years later, that I I recognised what he was doing and recognise how much better off in some ways we were physically, you know, in terms of food and, and accommodation, compared with what a lot of the other hostages suffered. Because as it happened, the general instructions
1: were to to treat you all roughly so so to that extent um this individual was rather bravely defying Saddam in 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 having you at his house and giving you cups of tea and treating you decently very much
3: so and as i said at the time we didn't necessarily appreciate that as far as we were concerned it was it just a case of him hedging you know we didn't know was it him hedging his bets in case it all went really wrong in case the americans were knocking on his door in a week's time But uh, yes, it it was. He was taking quite a big personal risk. If if one of us had tried to escape, or had escaped, he'd have been strung up uh, as soon as somebody would blink.
1: Initially, Barry's group were allowed to go out occasionally, although it wasn't exactly a relaxing
3: experience. The whole process was almost choreographed. So we went from when we were in the guest lodge, we were taken out occasionally, on a couple or several occasions for walks. There'd be the secret police riding in a Cadillac they'd liberated from Kuwait at the front and at the back. There'd be two conscripts with Kalashnikovs marching alongside. We had to march in single file. But we were taken out for exercise, which was really, really welcome relief. And then um, when we moved inside the dam to above the turbine room, that became almost vanishingly rare, which caused a a bit of a fracas between me and the who i guess was the chief guard although nobody would admit to being in charge of anything they we we didn't even know their real names um mr rail had admitted later that he never knew their names either but um we had been visited in the very early days by a big chief from baghdad one of the sort of house of cards kind of general types and um, he had said, "Oh, you know, you are our guests, and if you want to go out for a walk, I'll the guards will take you down. And if you want to swim in the lake, you can swim in the lake." And blah 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 blah. And of course, it wasn't. It wasn't. The reality was was, was not that. When we've been inside, stuck inside this bloody room, this 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 sort of office in, in locked up inside in this um, inside the dam, noisy. There's turbines. There's huge turbines. It's like sleeping on a seven four seven, and not not a new seven four seven. This noise all the time. It's forty degree heat. It's not a pleasant place to spend 24 hours a day any chance that we had to get outside was was a welcome relief just from the noise and the, to get fresh air but also you have this omnipresent fear that a bomb's going to come through the ceiling at any moment literally you're, you're on edge the whole moment you know waiting to for that bomb to come through that preemptive strike through the ceiling so any opportunity that you've got where you can actually get out literally and metaphorically mentally breathe some fresh air and have some space you you want it Barry bravely spoke
1: up, asking the guard why their exercise privileges had been taken away. Day after day went by without an answer, until Barry couldn't take it anymore.
3: You've got the heat, you've got the noise, you've got the the stress of it, and I basically told him what I thought about him and his country and his leadership and all the rest of it, slammed his door, and it broke the plasterwork around the door. And um, he came out and sort of started pointing his gun and I think he fired a shot in the air or in the, in the ceiling and that kind of woke everybody up and pointed it at me. So I'm going to, told me that he was going to kill me and do this and that and the other. And and I was quite frightened, obviously, because I, I, I probably sound a bit flippant about it, but it, it actually becomes normal.
1: Saddam Hussein now had over 600 hostages across 70 different sites. Among them was Margaret Hearn from Scotland. We haven't met Margaret yet. A mother of two young daughters, she'd boarded Flight 149, thinking she was headed on holiday to Malaysia. But instead, she was now a human shield, driven by soldiers out into the Iraqi desert.
4: We stopped at this electricity generating station well, it was pile-on things, but miles upon miles of them. And in the middle of them was a little one-storey office complex. And that's where we were stopped at. So we went in there, and they'd removed whatever desks and put in beds. We had guards that remained with us most of the time. We were there for a few days, and then we got this really scary thing. At one o'clock in the morning, they woke us up and then they said we were leaving. And so we got on a bus and we started driving the desert again and the curtains around the bus were all closed. And there was a man at the front with a machine gun and we were really, really scared. Everybody was crying, it was really scary.
1: So you must have thought, or must have at least crossed your mind that you were going somewhere where they were going to shoot you or do something terrible.
4: Yeah, yeah, we did. We thought, well, why are they moving us at 1 in the morning? Why are they being very scary now? You're just on your own then, you know? There's nobody knows where we were. And we're just driving through this desert with, you know, um, soldiers. It was, it was terrifying.
1: And knowing that, going through your head, were you, uh, you were thinking, I'm never going to see my daughters again?
4: Yeah, I did think that.
1: After this terrifying nighttime bus journey, Margaret eventually arrived at yet another deserted office block.
4: It was corrugated iron, nailed to every single window. So we had no light and we couldn't see out at all. There was strip lighting everywhere and it had
1: a horrible sewer smell. How many people were there held there in that group group group, that came on the bus? I tried
4: to count it up. It was either 18 or 20 and that was the group I was with the whole time. So we were moved from place to place and place. Um, and there were two children in our group and obviously their parents were incredibly anxious.
1: Was there ever a point where you knew where you were or was it all just completely mysterious? All
4: completely mysterious. I haven't a clue. I haven't a clue how long we drove for, what direction we went in. Probably the worst, the worst i went in the world. I have not a clue where I was.
1: But there was one time where you were pretty sure you were at a some kind of chemical facility.
4: I think so. It was very quiet. And the fact they'd covered all the windows with a corrugated iron, because we couldn't hear anything. So it was a factory of some kind, I think. And you could sort of hear people talking a bit. But we never got to see. And even when we always arrived in the night time and left in the night time. So it was never during the day. And so... We didn't ever know what it was, just
1: something that didn't want us to see. So you were literally kept, in. as far as your movements go, you were literally kept in the dark the whole time?
4: Yeah, yes we were.
1: We heard earlier how Clive was so hungry at one point, he was forced to eat a giraffe leg. The food supply at Barry's location wasn't quite so bad.
3: The food we had was not great, but it was probably as good as or better than... A lot of Iraqis were actually getting by that stage because there were sanctions against Iraq and they were starting to bite pretty deeply. So, you know, we had meat, it was ground up lamb or whatever, <laughs> mystery meat, but it was ground up meat with onions and some seasoning in it. We had tins of cheese, fresh salads, you know, like uh, cucumber and, and tomato very often. The bread was the only kind of weird thing. The bread had weevils in it because they, they'd make the bread and then sort of store it dry and then just wet it again with a wet tea towel overnight and, and eat it the next day. And so the bread had little these little brown insects in it. And I had gone into sort of survival mode by that stage and I, I was convinced that they would stop feeding us at some point. And there was that threat, I think that th- we were aware of that threat being made actually. I'm not quite sure how we knew it. But we 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 did know that there was this threat to stop feeding us. So I thought well, all the time. There's food. I'm just going to shovel it down my throat as, as anything I can get. I'd eat, I'd eat the scraps off other people's plates. I would eat anything that was put in front. Weevils that you could drown the little bastards in uh, in this thing. This date syrup. We had this date syrup, and if you spread it on the bread, the little sods would stop moving. Otherwise, it was like eating rice krispies. You have this sort of snap, crackle, and pop, which took a little bit of getting used to. Uh, But if you drowned them in date syrup, it was marginally less unpleasant than eating them raw.
1: But Clive continued to face starvation. This led to further desperate measures. We did have a lovely cat. A beautiful cat,
2: which is obviously his home, was the bungalow we were living in. And... uh, We had with us, we had a doctor, a lovely man. We never told the Iraqis, we never called him doctor, because we knew that if they knew we had a doctor with us, they might borrow him
1: and take him uh, for their own usage. The doctor, a man named Paul, could see they were all getting dangerously thin. This was long after the giraffe incident. They were starving but we still had this cat and so we decided
2: unfortunately that maybe the cat would have to be slaughtered uh, for a little bit of food, which was quite interesting. Somebody said they used to work on a farm and the mother used to wring the necks of chickens, so he volunteered to wring the neck of the cat. I then said, well... I've skinned a rabbit at home before now, and so I'll, uh, I'll. If you kill it, I'll skin it. To which somebody else then said, "Well, if you do that, I'll cook it." So we agreed, and that night we all said goodbye to the little pussy cat for the following morning. However, mid-morning, no sign of the cat somebody went out the back to uh, see what was happening out the back and say hello stupidly to the guard out there and the cat was hanging up in a tree already dead already slit open Um, so obviously the iraqi soldiers next door had uh, had a similar idea So, so we still
1: didn't get our cat but they did the outlook for the hostages seemed increasingly hopeless. The West was turning the screw on Iraq and Saddam Hussein was becoming even harder to predict. What this meant for the hostages was anyone's guess. Here's Margaret.
4: At that point, we all were busy writing out lists of everybody who was there because we were seriously worried that somebody would just drop off the radar. Where would they go? Because no-one knew where anybody was at any given time anyway. So we wrote out about... 20 copies of this list and we all took one and I've still got mine because we did think at some point maybe we'll be able to get this information back so they can try and work out where we all are and they asked us if we wanted to write a letter home and I did do it but I had no confidence it would actually get there so they gave me the paper they gave us a pen I did write and again you thought "Mm, they'll censor everything anyway so there's no point in saying I'm in a horrible hellhole, hole, um, you know. So I just wrote a very kind of almost, I'm all right. Um, there's enough food. Um, hope the girls are all right. Um, I'd planned my daughter's fourth birthday before I went away because I'm so organised. Uh, I should have been back for the birthday party and that should have been fine. But of course, I wasn't going to be. So I said to my husband, can you collect the cake from Waitrose <laughs> as you do? So I did write the letter and he did get the letter. Amazingly, it got three letters. I wish I'd known. Them, but we had no contact from them at all. We didn't hear from any of them. We did have the word Service, so we were listening to that.
1: When you listened to the World Service news, did you did you hear those moments where Mrs. Thatcher was being gung ho and was going to, you know, kick the Iraqis out and bomb? And
4: we knew that Thatcher would not negotiate. I mean, there wasn't a chance she would do it. Some people suggest there should be negotiations. What is there to negotiate about? You don't negotiate with someone who marches into another country, devastates it, killing whoever he stands in his way. You get him out, you make him pay, and see that he is never in a position to do these things again.
0: Here's Grigor. It did come to the point where... Uh, one of my fellow hostages, he had a, he'd smuggled a radio with him, so he would listen to the radio, uh, BBC World Service. At some point, the situation seemed to be getting worse, and uh, the sort of discussions were held about, you know, how much money do we have between us, or what kind of skills do we have, or what knowledge do we have of where we are, and if we really has, to, if it comes to it, and if we had to escape, how would we do it? Which felt. Kind of ridiculous, but I guess it just shows how desperate we were in that time of believing that, you know, you're so helpless and you have no control. And the little bits of information you're getting through the news and thinking if Saddam Hussein is getting ever more erratic or maybe desperate himself, and you don't know what he might do to the human shields. Well, the thought was that maybe we really will be in a position where it's either death or we try to escape. Hundreds of miles away, Barry was having similar thoughts
3: of escape. When we were inside the dam, in the turbine room, there was only one exit, and that had a conscript soldier on it. And I tried discussing with... I guess because I was I was a lot younger. The, the other guys there were in their 40s, mostly, 30s, 40s, 50s. Even 60s, actually, I think, one guy. So I'm thinking... When they start shooting us, we need to have a plan. We need to overpower this guard, get his. I, I probably read too many Escape from Colditz books as a, as a schoolboy, but I thought we we're going to have to have a plan to overcome this guard and if we can make a run for it or whatever, rather than just get lined up and shot. But no one else was. It was. I was sort of. I got the impression they were thinking he's, he's off his rocker. And there was no possibility of escape otherwise. When the valves were open for the dam itself there was the chance of if you could avoid the guards to be able to get down to the river and on one of the walks that we'd been on on the very early days we'd walked past this river and i'd felt the temperature and it was freezing freezing cold because the water comes out the bottom of the dam so it's coming out at the the bottom of the reservoir so it's coming out from like 60 meters down or 50 meters down it's really cold like just a couple of degrees above sort of water And the only other way would have been to get into this river somehow float downstairs but there were barbed wire and obstacles across the river and then of course you are 40 30 40 miles west of the Iranian border and about 100 miles as we worked out south of the Turkish border in a very highly patrolled fortified location because of the Iran-Iraq war and so there was a constant risk assessment, I, suppose, I guess I was doing in my own mind, about the danger of death from falling on rocks, drowning, being caught on barbed wire, being shot, the massively deteriorating treatment I might receive if I were just plain caught, and the risk of just being shot if I stayed put. And I suppose it's human nature that you you start living your life through the prism of Pink Floyd lyrics. You sort of become comfortably numb. It was
0: a situation whereby there was also not just soldiers, but, you know, these kind of... Saddam's PR guys, I guess you know, who were like plain clothes, uh, just with a shirt and, and normal trousers. They were they spoke English better or worse, but they spoke English definitely. There were always soldiers around as well, but these were the guys who'd mainly communicate with us in this camp, and you know we had with them some more longer discussions as well. And you did get the sense, I mean, when we talked then privately among us, the the Germans, we did get the sense that some of them were definitely not in favor of Saddam Hussein. But they they didn't dare to say it to us, of course, with the other people around, or they couldn't say. But it was kind of, you know, some of them definitely led on that they were not convinced by what their task was there and and the whole idea of holding us there and so on, you know. It's quite
1: possible these guys were actually Iraqi secret police, tasked with winning the trust of the hostages and reporting on what they were up to, the tentacles of the regime, which far and wide. Saddam also had a well-oiled PR machine, and he put his hostages to good use wherever and whenever he could.
0: CNN managed to get access to our camp because... We'd not been able to get any news out to family and relatives to, to let them know that we were alive. Even there was sort of split division among the Germans about whether we should take part in that at all. But um, in the end, they came and it was we did. Yeah. So and and it was good because friends and family did see me on CNN and say, okay, he's alive, and they they were happy for that. Of course you know the way it was done and the way it was presented they tried to get us to you know show us having a, a relaxed time and there was a, in the compound they had a little uh, pool table so I they, they filmed me playing pool there so it, it gave the impression of like ah look you know it's all okay they're all right you know playing a game of pool and uh, you know so of course it was not uh, it was a little bit misconstrued. <laughs> A parade of international figures
1: tried to intervene to help get the hostages out. Diplomats and politicians like Reverend Jesse Jackson, Tony Benn, and Edward Heath all stepped in with mixed results.
0: Then later on, when we had a visit also from Kofi Annan, not at that time Secretary General, he was Deputy Secretary General, I'm not sure, but he was, but Kofi Annan came and he had a visit, and he was allowed to come and talk to us. And I remember how we had discussions, just, you know, who's going to take part? And they said, no, we shouldn't, nobody should talk to him. This is all part of the propaganda for Saddam, and it's terrible. And we we were given conditions of what we're allowed to say. I mean, the most important of all was, you're not allowed to say Kuwait. If you're going to refer to Kuwait, it has to be followed by city.
1: According to Saddam Hussein and his regime... Kuwait no longer existed as
0: a country. They claimed it was now the 19th province of Iraq. So you can refer to Kuwait City, but you cannot refer to the country of Kuwait. Well, and I know that some of my fellow hostages they just absolutely refused to comply with this and said, no, I'm, I'm not going to talk to, to coffee. I again thought it's better to let my family know that I'm alive and get some message out. And by talking, I guess it's going to pass the message on. So I did go and talk. It was ridiculous because I couldn't actually talk to him because he'd said, like, they put us in a room and there was coffee and I just sitting on simple chairs opposite each other and somebody would burst in through the door literally every 30 seconds, without exaggeration, just every 30 seconds, somebody burst in the door, scream something and then go, just trying to interrupt any discussion which can possibly take place. So it was was hopeless. And, you know, after a few minutes of that, we stopped it basically and, and, and that was it. Apart from the occasional visits from dignitaries,
1: their only contact with the outside world was radio. It was a lifeline in some ways, but painful in others. I asked the human shields if they managed to stay optimistic, or if they just thought they'd never get out. Here's Margaret.
4: For the first three weeks, I had a photograph of my, my two daughters with me. And the first three weeks, I, every time I looked at it, I started crying. And in about the third week, I stopped crying. And I felt a bit numb, actually. And I think you were beginning to become used to the situation in a strange, kind of way. And you stopped thinking something will happen tomorrow. Because that just, that makes you go insane. You can't keep thinking something will happen tomorrow. Nothing's happening tomorrow, probably. What was the lowest moment? Probably it was my daughter's birthday. The day that she was four this party that I'd planned um, I didn't know obviously if it would go ahead or not but I just was so upset all day because I thought <sighs> I should be there you know this is, this, is, this is just awful
1: There really seemed to be little hope Most of the hostages started to think they may never see their families again I asked Barry about this did you consider at this stage that you might never get out?
3: Yes, actually, when I think about it, you realised that there was a very good chance that we'd be blown apart in some chemical factory, wherever, or taken out. You know, we all saw what happened with the the you know in in the lab in Beirut back in the seventies and the sort of classic hijacking situation. Unless you send us a double mac with cheese, uh, you know. <laughs> We're going to execute a passenger. And and that was kind of where I thought we we could be heading with it. Next time on the secret history of Flight 149.
1: When we first arrived in the American embassy, it was an environment of chaos.
2: When we got to the outskirts of Baghdad, nobody was there to meet us. Just a, a large group of Iraqi thugs.
4: I was almost broken then because I thought, I can't do this anymore, you know. When you think you're getting there, so near, you're, you're so close to breaking up.
1: The Secret History of Flight 149 is a Crowd Network original. It's presented by me, Stephen Davis. It's produced by Samantha Syke. Sound designers by Rory Ouskeri. The diary extracts were read by Paul Gallantry. To get episodes without adverts, subscribe to the Crowd Stories channel on the Apple Podcasts app. This series is based on my book Operation Trojan Horse, which tells the full story of Flight 149 and my search for the truth. It's available now in print, ebook, and audiobook. The music we use is from our partners, BMG Production Music. If you want another podcast to listen to, try American Vigilante. It's about the controversial figure of K.C., a man who could save your life, but end it too. Search for American Vigilante and subscribe now. Thanks for listening.
4: Crowd Network.
3: A place where you belong.